Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why GameBridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart.
Oh, hi, hello, and welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, she who is feeling very conflicted about the Thesmophoria Zeusai, Liv. <laughs> so, uh, well, you all heard this week's narrative episode. You know how I feel. But man, that play, I don't know what to do with it. And frankly, it's only going to get more absurd. Oh, oh there's there's some redeeming qualities, thankfully. Fucking Aristophanes, you know? Who the fuck did he think he was? Anyway, uh, fortunately for my own excessive emotions and inability to talk about that play objectively, I had the opportunity to speak to not one, but two very smart academics about Aristophanes and this play specifically, those women at the Thesmophoria. And thank the gods for both of these conversations because they will absolutely not only redeem the play, but just redeem my inability to tell the play in any kind of coherent and enjoyable way. (sighs) Today I spoke with past guest of the podcast, Julie Levy, who very kindly volunteered to speak with me about this nonsense play when I tweeted about it. Julie last joined me on the show to talk about asexuality in Greek mythology. (sighs) Very different topic, but even more fascinating because it's not Aristophanes. (laughs) Highly recommend that last episode with Julie. But today we did talk about Aristophanes, and I am so glad we did, because as much as I am officially not a fan, uh, talking to Julie about the context and history and Aristophanes himself added so much to this play, and next week's conversation is only going to make it better. Honestly, just so much better. My series would have been straight up obnoxious without the addition of this kinds of context. So we talked about history and the man himself and how all of that weaves its way into this play and makes it far more interesting and even, if you can believe it, more tolerable. I'm sorry, I'm being so unkind to this play, but frankly, I'm only human. And if this show is anything, it is not objective when it comes to the mistreatment of women and, of course, the slander of my beloved Euripides. And so, yeah, we talked a lot about that, too, because Julie and I are both enormous Euripides fans who made certain to defend him from all of that Aristophanic slander. He did not deserve this nonsense play being served to him, nor did the women of ancient Athens. But again, I'm getting I'm letting my emotions take hold. So let's just listen to a much more reasonable scholar who knows enough about history and context to provide much needed insights into this absolutely wild and absurd play. Conversations in defense of Euripides. Why is Aristophanes the way that he is with Julie Levy? I want to prep the listener for where I personally am at with this play, which is that I have written two episodes about it. There will be three. um, And then I just uh, speed read the end of the play so that I had it all in my head to talk to you. Um, But like, so I I was quoting the Theodoretus translation for the podcast but I've also been reading the Halliwell uh, because I have a copy of the book and it's been helpful with like end notes and things 
Um, and teaching me, you know, well, not teaching me, but reminding me of how some translations go, which is that I really enjoyed the Theodoretus at the beginning because it is much more fun, like in colloquial language. And then we start getting a lot of use of the words like slut and whore that are not in the other translation. And thus, I imagine, are a bit of a stretch, even from the Greek, which I didn't have a chance to look at. Oh, actually, but in yeah. this case, it might go the other direction. Really? Okay. Uh. Great. I want to hear about that because I I would have to check uh, because I haven't looked at the Greek in years. Um, But like I said, I just reread the the Theodorides because I wanted it to be to be an enjoyable read. I'm not I'm Mm -hmm. not, you know, here here writing a paper about it. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, Yeah, it is a much more fun translation for the most part. Yeah, I mean, Theodoridis does a really good job with the poetry and translation site of making really accessible versions of this stuff. I'm really impressed mm-hmm. generally, um, but it, but it does tend towards the colloquial and the updated. Uh, but in Aristophanes, in particular, there's a tendency for there to be a lot of really crude and callous jokes. I mean, really all the comedians do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I shouldn't say it's just Aristophanes. It's just, I can tolerate Aristophanes better than I can tolerate Menander, um, <laughs> which is just me. Valid. Um, <laughs> I've never read any Menander and I've only read, this is my third Aristophanes. Um, and I remain unimpressed. So, <laughs> Oh, you picked a doozy. Um, the one I like best is the frogs. Yeah, I agree. Um, the frogs yeah. is I've my read, favorite. I mean, it, the frogs is so fun. I think that's the problem too. So I've read Lysistrata and the frogs, and now Thesmophoria Zeusai, and the frogs is so fun. Um, mm-hmm. like it's just so silly and great, and we have singing frogs and like Aristophanes or uh, Euripides rather being silly in the underworld, and I love it. And then like. Lysistrata 2, I I need to reread it because I read it like uh it was a while ago for the podcast and it was before I had like kind of a better grasp on things and I have a feeling like I I would read it very differently now. Um so I didn't want to use that as like an example. But like yeah, the comparison between frogs and this is like what's happening? <laughs> Why? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Um the other one I would recommend is the birds. The birds is also pretty mm. fun. Um more more in line with the frogs than with Thesmophoria Zeusai. Um This is just such a strange play. <laughs> it is so um weird. And, you know, it's it's got it's got such a strange setting, and I think that's very deliberate. There's one thing people don't realize about Aristophanes is that um that Aristo at the beginning of his name is not for show. <laughs> he was he was a very elitist sort of person and he really did not like anything that pandered to anyone below his supposed station um you know we we like to think of ancient athens especially around this time as like a haven of of free and equal democracy with no social stratification but that's kind of nonsense there was a constant tension between the noblemen the the upper class in terms of wealth in terms of power in terms of of holdings and everyone else and a lot of the people that we hear the most from like aristophanes like thucydides are going to be people in that class and so 
Aristophanes is not, you know, he's not Terence, the comic playwriter from from uh, Rome, who was a former slave who was freed over the quality of his writing. He's not that. He's coming at this from the perspective of looking down. Mm. And so when he does political satire, which is the main thing that Aristophanes does, it's not always going to be easy to um, reconcile that with how we think about things. Because he he was an oligarch. Yeah. You know? Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> an interesting context that I wasn't um, fully aware of. I've been reading some... Uh, some sources on him but they've all kind of tended towards just like his uh his writing style and like kind of all of that um and and there's only you know so many sources I can read when I'm doing weekly episodes but it, it so many outside sources I should say the primary are great and then trying to learn about the other people I'm like whew but also I mean <laughs> I, I I just it's funny because I I, I came into covering this play because all I had really heard about it, um, you know, is that it, it, it features this women's festival and that it features Euripides slander that like I have had, I would say, I'm trying to remember when this happened, but I, I know it has like at least once or twice I have made my varied defenses of Euripides as, as I mean, both like the best but you know I, I guess that we can't all agree that he's the best but I <laughs> think that there's a really strong argument to be made that he was the most interested in women's voices and women's characters and I fucking love him for that and so like what I've been told about Thesmophoriusi was that uh it is somehow like a a a reasonable source for the idea that Euripides actually hated women like people have like used that as a, oh, that's funny. As a source. And now in hindsight, I'm like, that's absolute fucking nonsense. Not least because this is fiction and, and Aristophanes is like poking fun at so many things. But also like, I mean, now I've read it. I'm like, well, I mean, they're not even, they don't even believe it. Like when they're making the arguments, these characters, like it's not actually really based much in, in Euripides' like actual, you know, writing and characters. It's like, it's all this like over the top stereotypical you know, takes on, on everything. Um, but that's what I came into this play as. And now I'm like, oh my God. Like, I, I think the thing I, I really want to talk about most is the way he's playing with and poking fun at gender because as uh -huh. like one person telling this story in 2023, I'm just like, oh my God, how do I do this like, yeah and, and there's so much to unpack with this one yes. because not only is it aristophanes looking down on euripides whom he clearly did not like for a number of reasons not least because he did explore women's voices in a sympathetic light like mm -hmm. all of the arguments you get in thesmophoria zeusai are basically aristophanes saying but women are terrible and you're revealing all of their secrets. Yeah. And, and or just and it's, like... it's such it's such a it's such a right wing argument. It's like it's <laughs> yeah. it reminds me so much of like when you listen to these these I mean, I'm American, so forgive me, uh, but these Republican politicians talking about abortion and you know, they start going off on like, you know, personal responsibility and like 
all of all of these misconceptions about how women will just use an abortion instead of birth control and it's like wow you've never met a woman in your life have you <laughs> um like it it really has that feel to me of like aristophanes was was pushing that you know that agenda of like well of course women are terrible and you writing them as sympathetic is going to make them hate you um and that's that's how i have come away from it um but i think it's really fascinating this like how how aristophanes views women versus how he views euripides viewing women <laughs> which is so complicated um yeah. but also just like because the stereotypes are so very different but one of the things that's really different between between you know like white western culture and and like ancient athens is that in ancient Athens, the idea was that women were shamelessly addicted to sex and that men were the ones who were like restrained. And now the, the idea that that would be the stereotype seems wild because the idea is that women are frigid and men Mm -hmm. are always like having, having to debase themselves to get sex um and like all of those stereotypes are obviously bunk um both directions but you can see it in how aristophanes writes his women uh mm-hmm. both both in this and in the lysistrata particularly which were almost certainly performed the same year by the way yeah that's interesting that was one of the um, things that i was fascinated by yeah so like the context of Aristophanes putting out these two plays where where the women are in charge and the men are, you know, behaving like women to his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the context for this, like, this is the year 411 BCE. This is the year, like, they're in the Peloponnesian War and things have been going kind of badly because... They made some really ridiculous mistakes. And in later in the year than this festival, I'm pretty sure, some historian's gonna come in and like correct me on the exact chronology here, but this is the same year that we get the overthrow of the democracy and right. a a Persian influenced uh oligarchic government gets installed to try and finish the war. <laughs> yeah it's it's quite a time like i mean politically and then also in like the relevancy of what you know like the the overarching themes of this play because even just you saying the year i think that's also i mean and it's it's pretty evident from the text itself too but i think it's one year after the helen and the andromeda were performed by and both of those are cited in this play. Exactly, exactly. So they're like they're made very relevant, but but it also kind of feels like this is written in reaction to that because the other thing that that I am like obsessed with when it comes to Euripides broadly, um, but I believe it's the Helen that's the the catalyst, at least in my head. Uh, but like certainly the year is the the change is that after that point, Euripides doesn't write choruses that aren't women. And I fucking love that. So I feel like 
I mean, it's it's like obviously an I hadn't put huge... that together, but that's wonderful. Yes, it's my favorite thing <laughs> in the whole world. Like it, it, he hits this line, and he's like, "I am now disinterested in choruses of men," and I, I just I could talk about Euripides for the rest of my life. I think um, I, he's wonderful. He's I'm I'm right there with you. He's my favorite of the tragedians too. He's just um, he's magnificent, and and but a yeah, lot of it is for how he writes women. Yeah. Um, so there are two women in particular over the course of three plays that are cited as the reasons why the women hate Euripides. Phaedra. Mm-hmm. They really Phaedra. hate Phaedra. Phaedra and Melanippe. And unfortunately, we yeah. don't have either of the Melanippe plays. We have some fragments. When you look at Phaedra, she's such a sympathetic character, even though she's driven by this terrible situation and her her terrible feelings like you can feel empathy for her in what she's doing Mm -hmm. and it's clearly within the play it's like well yeah she's like way closer in age to hippolytus than to his father so of course right um and also his father like, is th- his is Theseus. Let's be frank. Let's yeah. make sure that the listener recalls this. Because I have not covered the Hippolytus. I want to, <laughs> but I have not. Oh, so just can, like can I come back for that? <laughs> <laughs> Please. Yeah. Well, did you know? And I want to share I all I mean, I'll share this on mic too, but I was going to anyway. Um, and I think he tweeted about it, but I just uh recently hung out with Jeremy Swift because he was visiting Victoria and he reminded me or mentioned to me that he is using our episode where where you did already come onto my show to talk at mm-hmm. least Hippolytus in, in terms of of like sexuality. Um, and he's using that for his class that everyone has to listen to that after they read Hippolytus. And oh, so, yes, him. absolutely. You can come back. But I'm like, oh, we've already kind of done that, too. And I always forget because <laughs> I haven't covered Hippolytus, but you've come on to talk about it in that context. And I was like, oh, right. I have that content. That's great. I'm so glad people are all liking it. <laughs> I can talk about the Hippolytus for like an entire class. Well, um, I will make a note to make sure you come back when I cover the full <laughs> play. <laughs> and and shout out to Jeremy and his wonderful kitties, as long as we're on the subject. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, God, wouldn't that be a fun class? So yeah, uh, I feel like I've started down a couple of threads that I haven't come back to. So the first thing that I want to jump back to is like I was talking about the the sort of cursing at women and calling them whores and sluts. Mm-hmm. Um, what you right, actually yeah. find is that a lot of translators into English will tone those down for mm. publication. Those those particular types of things. Like they'll they'll call a hatira a companion. They'll, but isn't hatira tech the like the technical uh, technical definition is companion too? I mean, yes. I know that's not always yeah. The context, like that's a, but, okay. it's an absolutely legitimate thing. But there's a lot of context that makes it yeah, very yeah. clear that what they mean is escort. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I just want to clarify that because I realized I had it in my head because I. The, inter- the reason that that became interesting to me was that it's used for like Patroclus and Achilles. And I kind mm-hmm. of love the like the difference between the use of like the masculine hetera. I don't know what the masculine form is, but um, um, and what we think of as I think it's hetera. I think it's, I think it's that would make sense. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. But I yeah, that like again, but like hetera. <laughs> hetera just means you know female companion, but when it's used in the context of like 
I hired a Hetaira. Yeah. It's very clearly meaning whore. Mm-hmm. You know? And the 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 sex worker phobia that runs through a lot of translations, like just like the homophobia that runs through a lot of translations, is really palpable when you start comparing. So it's mm-hmm. I haven't looked at the Greek for this one. I don't know whether Theodides or um or the other translator that you're looking at are more accurate here, but it might mm-hmm. well actually be that Theodides is is closer on that subject. Mm-hmm. Um, because My there are a lot of slut. I would love to know like the Greek contextualizing <laughs> of like when we should use slut because he uses that um in like all these moments when the women are angry at um Menasilicus. Uh, Ripides' father-in-law and like yeah that's where it really got me like I understand the use of the word whore as much as I would want to say sex worker like I understand it needs to be whore in these contexts but like it's the overuse of the word slut I guess that I was just like ah (laughs) yeah I think the most common word you're gonna see for that in the Greek is porne oh wow okay yeah that sounds right all right I can can hear the etymology in there yeah Okay, I'm going to look into the Greek before I cover the next episode, or the, the final bit of this play, because <laughs> now I'm just fascinated. Um, but yeah, like, there, there's a whole, like, categorization system for what kind of sex worker you're talking about. Like, a hetaira is, like, the, the highly paid courtesan type, mm-hmm. usually, but then you also get, like, the, the, the porne, who is, who's just, like, sort of a more generic um but then there's also i can't remember the word right now but there's something that means approximately like spring chicken (laughs) for the street walking (laughs) whores love it um so like there's a lot about sex work and sex workers especially in comedy and the ambics um you do find it mostly we have we have more stuff later on we have more stuff from rome but like it's there (laughs) um and it gets alighted a lot when we talk about more modern translations um or or i mean heavens forbid you know like 1800s translations (laughs) nobody wants to write those words out goodness that would be inappropriate (laughs) um it's like yeah because you're not translating the bible you're translating you know the wife of bath's tale okay (laughs) so yeah i mean the the use of the all of the women in in this play and like all the stereotypes of their their use of their sexuality like both the more over the top and the the sum that were just like Oh, like the time I, you know, snuck out to meet up with my boyfriend. Uh, I told my husband I had a stomach ache or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I I found those very, very interesting. And I feel like I jumped topics there. Sorry, but it just came to my mind. No, but that's, I, I, that's, that's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm all over the place too. Because like I was thinking about also Melanippe. Like, that's not a commonly told tale. Um, yeah, what, what is... Do you know it offhand? Yeah, I so so I, I went I went and looked it up again to make sure that I had this straight mm-hmm. because, like I said, it's not one that gets told a whole bunch. So Melanippe um, was a, a princess, of course. Um, she was 
raped by Poseidon, mm-hmm. and she bore a pair of twins. Um, she tried to conceal them, like conceal that she had been pregnant by like just kind of sneakily leaving them as if that someone had abandoned them, but then her father was going to kill them, so she admitted that she was their mother, and he went, well, I guess I can't slay my own kin, but let's expose the babies and send you away as a slave. Lovely. Um, right. So then what happens is that, of course, both babies get found, they're cared for by shepherds, and um, they come to be adopted by another queen who has been unable to bear children. Um, oh, I should really remember her name. I feel like it's Theone. But I mean, I'm gonna... I've certainly come across this myth, but I'm surprised it's not more familiar to me. I'm usually better than this. Theano, that's why it is. That's what mm. it is. It's Theano. So, so, so this other queen whom Melanippe is now the slave of ends up adopting Melanippe's sons unknowingly. Um, but then later on, she bears twins of her own. And once all of them are grown, she's like, well, I don't want these these sons I didn't actually give birth to to become next in line for the throne. So she tells her own sons to to kill Melanippe's sons. And that backfires. And um Theano and both her sons are defeated um in some versions Melanippe is the one who is like told to poison her own sons and mm-hmm. she decides to poison the other children instead um even though it could get her killed so, so like this is the basic story, of, mm-hmm. and you can see where. So Euripides wrote two plays about Melanippe. We have some fragments of. Um, I think the first is called Melanippe the Wise, and the second is called Melanippe Bound. Fuck, I love Euripides. Uh, yeah, right. I just, so, ah. <laughs> so, so the first one is about Melanippe giving birth to her twins and then saving them. And the mm-hmm. second one is about Melanippe as a slave and the adoption and the, the mm-hmm. death plot and that stuff. We think. Probably. Um, <laughs> so so we can only guess at exactly what it is that, that Aristophanes is so darn angry about. But, you know, given that story, it's very easy from a modern perspective to be like, Melanippe did nothing wrong. <laughs> Like, yeah, what did what did she do? But like with all of the complaints in the play, you can kind of see this. Well, she might have she concealed her lover, Mm -hmm. even if it wasn't consensual. That's still a thing that they would get upset about. Mm -hmm. Um, She concealed her pregnancy. She didn't let the babies get killed. Um, So she's ruined. And she's protecting her babies mm-hmm. that are, you know, the, the cause of this ruination. And then as a slave, she's an unfaithful slave and, uh, and a murderess. So like, that's, 
like I can see where coming from the perspective of those sneaky women want us to think that, you know, they have good reasons for doing the things that they do. Um, but they're really just sneaking around with, with wine sacks in their baby clothes. Um, <laughs> like, like uh, you can kind of see how that happened um, with a, a certain twisted and misogynist perspective. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting because like, I mean, I can see where the argument gets made in, in cases like that. And like, I'm interested, I'd be interested to know, you know, whether any real woman took any kind of offense, but like, I understand what's interesting too is, is when um, there's, there's this moments where, where they're like explicitly mad that Euripides is writing about people like Melanippe and, and Phaedra when he could be writing about Penelope, but Oh, he never writes about Penelope. And I found that very interesting because it, I mean, it, it sounds like without question, it was written by a man, you know, it's one of the, yeah. it's like so much of the Penelope discourse of like this virtual woman, virtuous, virtual. I like that. Um, this virtuous woman who's like, you know, utterly perfect and, and like waited for her husband, all of that nonsense. Like, it's this like silly, silly men's ideal of of like what a woman should be, and so yeah, it was it was particularly interesting to to hear that comparison because and 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 it applies to so much of this play where you're just like it screams written by a man and like I get it it was and it's the ancient world and like we we're not getting a lot written by not men, but it, it it's fascinating to me More and than I you and think, I think it, but less than we talk about yeah yeah not nothing um. But but I mean, certainly in these in these like, you know, theater contexts, we have men. And so it's but I think it's also has to do with me being so used to reading tragedy and kind of always not like I forget that comedy is going to be different, but I do forget how much at least Aristophanic comedy is like so based in real life that it becomes this. It, it really just is like a an insight into the psyche of him and and like the people around him in a way that I just at the very least in this play <laughs> find very hard to wrap my head around. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. 
Well, I don't know about you, but like I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's so hard to read Nesilokos because, because that's clearly voicing what Aristophanes thinks, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, he goes on and on about the, the horrible things that women do, and all of the women are just kind of like, what the hell? And yeah. And that's my reaction, too, but it's not the reaction that Aristophanes was trying to evoke. And it's probably not the one he got. Mm-hmm. Um, he probably got men going, ha ha, yeah, women are terrible. Yeah, I mean, like, that's the thing, too. Like, written by a man, performed by men, and viewed by probably almost only men. Like, certainly, you know, a lot and, is said about whether there are any women in there. But there certainly are not. Like, the women who are meant to be at this festival, they are not watching this play. And even if they were, I mean, think about it. Like, if you are on the side that Aristophanes is even plausibly correct there, that Nesilikos is not just talking out his ass completely, um, <laughs> which, a reminder, he is even in context. If you are even slightly of that mindset, any protest that a woman makes is going to sound hollow in that context. Like, a woman saying, wow, that was a bunch of garbage will be taken as, yeah, and I bet you carry a wine sack around swaddled in baby clothes too. Like there's just no, there's no opening there for maybe women aren't trash. (laughs) Yeah. 
Oh God. Yeah. It's, oh my God. There's, I mean, there's, there's so much in this play. Um, I also want, I want to hear your thoughts and like, I want to just kind of talk about it out loud. Cause it's the thing that, that I've struggled with the most is also gender expression. Like obviously the, the presentation of women in this play is wild and bananas and oh my God. Um, but also navigating the way Aristophanes portrays and, and views Agathon and Cleisthenes and Menesilicus when he's dressed as a woman is like, there's just so much happening. And, and personally, I've been really struggling trying to convey the narrative and explain the context without, um, without like even like, I mean, I feel like a lot of it, if you take it too seriously and you kind of forget a lot of the context around it kind of sounds like, you know, like the nonsense that turf spout, you know, this idea of like a man infiltrating a women's space and, and getting away with it. And like, I, I've just been struggling trying to convey how like that. I don't know. It's, there's just so much yeah. there in 2023 that makes it like <laughs> fucking difficult. Uh, yeah, certainly. Like, <laughs> I don't think you're, I don't think you're wrong calling it turf-like. Um, not so much in the man sneaking into a woman's space part, but in the, because Menesilicus isn't treated like a real threat. Mm-hmm, true. Right? Like, the women think he's a threat, but like, we're supposed to sympathize with him. We're not supposed to sympathize with either Agathon or Cleisthenes. Yeah. And that I think is where it really comes in, right? Yeah. Cuz Agathon is like he's another another tragedian who's a bit younger than Euripides um who is a frequent butt of Aristophanic ire. Um Aristophanes thinks that he is you know, he's too obsessed with aesthetics and that he's womanly. Um, and like, we really see that because we see Agathon completely dressed as a woman and, you know, Nesilicus's reaction to seeing Agathon dressed as a woman is that's not a woman. I know that, or that's not a man. I know that whore, I think is what Theoretes actually says there. Um, well, I mean, there's one moment where it's like, oh, you don't recognize him, but you've probably had sex with him and you didn't even know it. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Like, okay. And that's in fact that's in fact what Nasilicus essentially says mm-hmm. what happened is like he knows he knows Agathon as a woman. And I think in context, this is somebody we might suspect to be some manner of trans. Mm-hmm. Um certainly Agathon in the portrayals we have of him, which again, we gotta keep in mind this is through the lens of somebody who hates him seems to be gender fluid Mm -hmm. seems to be perfectly capable of living life as both a man and a woman at different times Mm -hmm. and that is a real thing people are like that and that's perfectly fine and that may be something that helped in agathon's writing too Mm -hmm. like that's sort of the context it's presented in here so 
what we may have is you know somebody perfectly fine and respectable doing something that genuinely is an expression of their gender or what we may have is a whole lot of nothing piled on somebody that Aristophanes finds effeminate mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like it's kind of hard to tell yeah um, that's the part the part that i found so fascinating because the way aristophanes portrays him like if you kind of ignore the fact that it's pretty obvious that, that aristophanes is trying to insult him like that's pretty clear but if you kind of ignore that context agathon's actually incredibly fun like he he is really open about being like i don't care what my gender expression is like i want to be all and everything i want to utilize and have fun with these different you know aspects and i he's such a fabulous queen yeah, like he, he seems be like it would be race. so much fucking fun to hang out with. Like, that's definitely a line that I have said in this is like, if we take him at this, this version, if that is, you know, in, in any kind of reference to, to his real lived experience, like he sounds amazing. And I want to be his friend. Not least because he was wrote, written tragedy during it. Yeah. And like, look at his reaction. Look at his look at his reaction to, to Nasilicus needing to dress yeah. up as like, yeah, his reaction is like, I'm cool with it. Okay, fine. If we're doing this, then here's a dress. And oh, honey, you need this wig. Oh, honey, you <laughs> yeah. need these shoes. Oh my God, not just a hairnet. No, you need this wig. Like, you're not going to pull that yeah. off. <laughs> like, excuse me. If we're doing this, we're doing it correctly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And 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 i just i find that so interesting like it it does speak to at very least a culture that has those things in it for people to recognize mhm because so many people want to say oh like trans people are this new phenomenon absolutely not absolutely yeah. not without this portrayal i could still tell you that there were plenty yeah. <laughs> of ancient greek trans people of various types but like this portrayal relies on a cultural knowledge that this happens. Yeah, that this is like a thing you can just comment on that people are living like this. Not least because there are two characters, because Cleisthenes is also a little bit mm-hmm. portrayed this way, like differently. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, and between the two of them, that it's it's absolutely fascinating to have these kind of overt examples of, you know, at the very least, some kind of gender fluidity just like openly among you know popular popular tragedian at this time Mm -hmm. and it this is where it comes back around to that that sort of gender critical crap you know because because you know the queen of turf island herself um has has these awful terrible trans characters but when you read them you can be like okay like a thousand years from now somebody might look at that and go like you know, I I can tell that she hates this person, but at the same time, like, here are things that we can acknowledge that must exist in that society to make it acceptable for somebody to do this, even if they're hated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and really, this comes back to what I was saying about Aristophanes, just in general, that his viewpoint is very conservative, very right-wing, very oligarchic um and anti-democracy and like he despises this breaking of the norms breaking of the binary 
Mm-hmm. Um, he despises the women that he assumes are up to no good because, of course, they're up to no good. He despises Euripides for trying to tell him that women are people. Um, <laughs> yeah. With with feelings and reasons and that are oh not just characters? obsessed with sex. Ugh. Um, That even Phaedra is not just a sex-obsessed weirdo, you know? Yeah. It's really, it's it's the same bigotry in place mm-hmm. then as now. And, you know, okay, Aristophanes wrote some great plays. But let me tell you, I'm not going to pay for his video game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Like, like, <laughs> not going to give him any money. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't give him the time of day. Um, yeah. So, so when we come to Cleisthenes, there are a couple of really funny things going on. Yeah. Like I, I mentioned briefly that there's some, like some very tense political stuff happening in Athens at this time. Um, the, the, the overthrow of democracy, the installation of an oligarchy. But there's oh, also this thing. subtle thing running through this play of like talking about the Persians. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that, which is that like the the installation of the oligarchy was actually kind of funded by the Persians. Um, like they the Athenians had fought the Persians off a hundred years ago or so. But at this point in the war, um, the Persians are funding both sides, uh, both the uh, Athenians and the Spartans, so that they'll fight each other. That's wonderful. And, I mean, it's just interesting. I suppose it And be Alcibiades, who was like the big oh, Athenian oh, oh. general, has been exiled to Persia, where he is trying to get himself basically reinstalled in a position of power from. I, if you ever do a life of Alcibiades, I don't. I don't know if I, you've talked about him. I mean, oh I, my I have, god! Yeah, I would love to. I need to, like if I can find sourcing on things. So if you have anything to share my way, oh god, please oh do my because god. I love yeah. Alcibiades. What I a, mean, how could you not? What, what little I've talked about. <laughs> like, oh my! I mean, just to remind the listeners of the the favorite thing that we have to say about this man is that he was exiled ostensibly because he chipped off all the fucking dicks of all the herms in Athens and <laughs> like probably uh, didn't. Yep. And there's so much more to it, but that is the greatest story that, uh, <laughs> that features him. It's just like going around in the dead of night and making sure no herm is left with a penis. It's just my favorite thing. Um, but I mean, also his character in Assassin's I Creed think, Odyssey. I think is. the best part of that is the, is the idea, not just of him knocking the dicks off, but then stealing them. Oh right, he keeps them. <laughs> you gotta. Like he's he's not just like removing the protective phalloi. He is <laughs> he is taking all the dicks for himself. Um <laughs> which um you know when when Plato writes about him, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> Apparently he had the hots for Socrates in a bad way. Um I mean yeah, it, I, it's my favorite thing is the the Assassin's Creed version of him where he will have sex with everyone in every city in all of Greece. Like 
they just have so much fun with his character in that he pops up like almost everywhere that you travel and you can romance him in every possible location. And he is just like <laughs> half naked and hypersexualized in every single moment of that game. That's pretty and much what we know about him. Yeah. That and his just so absolutely conniving with everybody so that he can maintain power. Um, yeah, I mean, and he like he ended up dad. living out his days actually as as a, a like as a governor of a province in Persia. Um, it's like a nice way to live. Yeah, um, but at, like at this point, like the women's council in the Thesmophoria Zusai, they call the council on two things. So it's not just that you, they want to kill Euripides. The other thing is that they want to kill anybody bringing in Persian influence. Right. Yeah. And, and here specifically. And you can tell that Aristophanes, for all his like Athenian pride shit, is making fun of them for this. Mm-hmm. Wh- which just lines up perfectly with his support of the oligarchy that the Persians are trying to help install. Huh. Like, it all lines up. And if you look at, at the undercurrent of, like, when the Persians or the, or the Corinthians are mentioned, like, you can see Aristophanes' personal politics coming into play all throughout this. And so Cleisthenes, to bring it back around to our other cross-dresser, is... This Cleisthenes is a... A sort of ambassador who is working with the Persians and he's tattling to the women. He's ineffectual. He's effeminate. He's inexperienced. And, you know, he's openly admitting to being a man in a dress to, to go back to the gender critical ideology there. Mm-hmm. Like, He's he's out there saying, look at me, I'm a trans woman, and a trans woman is a man in a dress, because that's me. And it's like, wow, that's, that's a thing that you just did there, Aristophanes. Um, so and I'm, so, like, I'm... the idea is that he's, he's a man betraying his own sex. Mm-hmm. And, a pers- and a, an emissary betraying his own city. Right, yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. I'm I'm curious because having looked at the two translations, I wondered about how explicit it was that Cleisthenes is meant to be actually dressed like a woman. Like I in the in the Theodoretus it's he definitely mm. postulates that yeah. that he is. Um in the Hollywell it's less obvious. It's more so that he's like kind of saying like I'm one of you women but at the same time they do like immediately call him a boy obviously in in both translations Mm -hmm. because he's clean shaven um but it was just interesting to me uh, the idea that like was he definitely dressing as a woman like definitely trying to to portray himself as one or was he coming at it more like I'm with you I you know I'm a fan I I I align myself with women and I was curious about about that uh, I actually think this has uh, this has to come back to sort of the the sex work angle. Uh, sex work might be too generous here, um, mm-hmm. because 
the the category of um young boys who were seen as sex object mm-hmm. is really coming into play here i think i mean this is yeah. my personal opinion you'll find people who differ on this i don't know whether he would explicitly wear a dress in this scene but i think what they're talking about when they're like you're a boy you're clean shaven you're you're beautiful and youthful Mm -hmm. i think what they're getting at is that he is like them in that he is a sex object yeah it's like the pederasty of it all right like the i mean it it comes back especially with agathon it comes to to, um you know the the nature of of gay relationships obviously between men only in in ancient athens where it's like it's more respectable if you're the top if you're the bottom, mm-hmm. you're basically a woman. And it feels like that's kind of what, what he's doing with both of those characters. Right. Um, and and that, that difference between the penetrator and the one being penetrated is a big distinction for them. Mm-hmm. Much more so than your actual gender identity. Mm-hmm. And so I think that regardless of whether you take Cleisthenes to actually be wearing a dress... Mm-hmm. Like I think that's less important than the implication that he is in the same category as a woman. Yeah. Okay. No, that makes um, that makes sense. But the fact that he feels such kinship with them is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that that Aristophanes doesn't go the next step and have Euripides dress as a woman and Euripides be the one who is associated with women is actually kind Mm -hmm. of interesting to me um, because I would have expected it here, right? Mm -hmm. Like the whole point of this is that he's, he's revealing women's secrets. Ooh. Um, How we hide our boyfriends from our fathers. Uh, Yeah. Right. Um, But like, that's, that's the idea. And, and so you'd think, that that would be a prime opportunity to have Euripides, not Nasilicus, cross-dress and play the part of the woman. Mm-hmm. But when when Agathon suggests it, Euripides won't do it. Like, yeah, he says he's like going to be too recognizable or something, right? He's like, I can't pass. But it's interesting that he's like, my father-in-law can pass. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. <laughs> He says, I'm too old and I have too big a beard and I have too recognizable a face. And it's like, well, but do you if you shave off the beard? Yeah. Like if this if this father-in-law of yours, you can shave off his beard. And like, I recognize he wouldn't be as he wouldn't be Euripides. But like, it seems to be that as soon as that happens, this man like completely looks like he's a woman. And, you know, they all all the women in there have no problem believing it. Right. Um, and so, so I, I, I wonder at that, I feel like it has some importance. Um, my, my thoughts on that line are kind of, I wonder if the point of, of calling out an older respected playwright, if there was a line that was too far to cross. Right. Because, because you know, the, the, that's not always the case. Like, in the clouds, Aristophanes lambasts Socrates pretty much by name. Um, like, that's the whole point of the clouds. 
Um, well, and in the frogs, he he gets at Euripides pretty hard in that one too. Yeah, but again, like the that's a contest between the words Euripides wrote and the words Aeschylus wrote at that point, mm-hmm. and and so he has some plausible deniability, right? So like, there's it's. So I feel like there's got to be some other reason underlying this. And I wonder if if there was some reputation of Euripides as very masculine that would have made that joke hard to pass off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I've also heard the theory that um, that like maybe Aristophanes didn't just hate Euripides like it seems, but actually they were like best bros and he's making fun of him in a more friendly kind of way. I don't totally know how I feel about that because I feel like um, Euripides deserves better. Yeah. Okay. Like, like I just, I can't, I can't make that work in my head. I mean, the more I read of of Aristophanes and even just the, the more you've said here too, like I agree mostly, I think, because I just think Euripides is so much better than that, but that might be like you know my well, own. Like bias I'm also I'm also through. just thinking about Euripides' writing and the politics that he displays. Yeah, um, Euripides had a fondness for pushing the envelope and and trying to widen people's minds, and that's mm-hmm. the total opposite of what Aristophanes likes to do. Yeah, um, you know Aristophanes is always on about how every time you do that you let in more nonsense um if you if you let the women rule then you know everything will be topsy-turvy and nothing will make sense if you um if you're acting no better than women then we might as well stop fighting at all um if you take litigiousness to its extreme this is the birds i'm talking about here if you take litigiousness to its extreme, then you could litigate the crown off of Zeus. Um, which is the actual ending of the birds. Amazing. Um, you know, so like anytime that you let new thoughts in, anytime that you have somebody telling, uh, corrupting the youths, as they accuse Socrates of doing, that they could think for themselves, that they should question things things don't have to stay the way they were that Aristophanes responds by lampooning it uh, by making it seem like you're just wanting change for change's sake and there's no actual reason to do that things are fine the way they are it's a very conservative mindset and Euripides is basically the exact opposite and it's like women have feelings um, it's worth considering that what they do in bearing children in his Medea is just as dangerous as standing behind a spear in battle. It's worth considering that, you know, marrying women off against their will is not always going to end up well. Um, it's worth considering that, that there is more to, to the world than just what we have in front of us. And that, you know, if I if what I have to do is stage the furies in a tragedy to get you to listen, that's what I'll do. Um, which reportedly made people run out of the stadium in terror, by the way. Um, which moment is that exactly? 
Oh, I'm trying to remember, but that's that's in the um the play about Orestes. It, okay, the, then the, it's just Orestes. Yeah, and the, yeah. the Furies okay. come on to chase him, and staging the Furies was such a taboo that people literally mm. ran from the theater, reportedly. Oh, I love Euripides. I know, right? So, so like, I cannot imagine people with such disparate views of the world sitting down and being bros. Yeah. When they're, I mean, like, it's not that that can never happen, but the cognitive dissonance you have to hold to do it is pretty hard. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it's like today, right? Like, I... I I mean, this came up yesterday. Somebody messaged me to tell me that they really enjoyed the show, really loved the content, but they actually had to stop listening because I said Jordan Peterson and everyone who associates him with our fucking garbage people. And and I just think, you know, that it reminds me of that where I'm like, I will never be able to be friends with someone who, you know, comes at me telling me that Jordan Peterson or Joe Rogan are like the salt of the earth and I think okay yeah like that's just the line that gets drawn so yeah I mean I think there's lots of modern references like that yeah like I I to- totally agree for the record um yeah. <laughs> good that's why you're on Jordan the show Jordan Peterson is like the epitome <laughs> of the mediocre white man who got by on bullshitting uh until he found himself in the spotlight that and is then... like almost exactly a tweet I tweeted yesterday. To yeah, somebody. Oh, sorry, I didn't see <laughs> yeah, that one. exactly. But yeah, no, no, no. Like, like I just mean I agree with you completely. Yeah, it's it's been there is a certain a certain mindset for which that kind of jargony talking in circles is very appealing because it sounds like you have all the answers and mm-hmm. they feel like they have none of the answers and they're like yes pour your wisdom into me and mm-hmm. i will ignore all the cognitive dissonance that that implies yeah. Yeah. um and it's yeah. it's very culty honestly um, oh yeah absolutely so so yeah like it's 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 a it's a very cultish thing and i think that we as as a society need to do better with our teaching of of critical thinking particularly um and with our support so that people don't feel so helpless all the time Mm -hmm. yeah agree entirely um yeah, but this is very. Agree entirely, and yeah, I know exactly. I was gonna say I agree completely, and also let's talk more about. I want to say Aristophanes, but mostly I mean Euripides because you know because that's yes. what I really want to talk about. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. 
at retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. But yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. No, I, I agree, you know, that that the likelihood of them them being friends um, seems uh, not likely at all. Um, but it I mean, it, it is so I don't even know where I was going with that. But I, I suppose that it is just interesting how much he does come at Euripides. And I I'm interested to hear your thoughts on those moments so i haven't i haven't written the episode on this bit yet but um basically like after cleisthenes comes and goes and and then they just kind of start like just acting out the helen and the andromeda and another one i think and like it's as if they're just especially with the helen it's like Eurybides comes on stage he's playing menelaus and they just like act out a huge portion of the helen and it felt so bizarre to me and like I don't you know I read the Helen like eight months ago now so I'm not gonna remember like exactly what the line comparison is but it felt to me that that's what it is and I just sort of am curious like what Aristophanes is doing like under I guess he's insulting the Helen which I fucking love that play um such a good but yeah it's such a good play it's so good yeah so so the Helen is one of those moments especially 
the beginning, and that is that is a I don't know if it's a direct quotation or a paraphrase of the opening scene of the Helen, but it is it is the opening scene of the Helen where Helen is claiming sanctuary at a tomb to you know keep herself free of marrying mm-hmm. this guy and Menelaus washes up on shore and they have this sort of weird reunion um but the thing is that Euripides is playing with the myth in an interesting way not not necessarily of Helen being in Egypt because that existed before um mm-hmm. that goes the you know that variation goes back at least to Stesicorus, where you have, like, the cloud Helen, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, Eidolon. Which, again, lovely. Um, it's the best. Yeah. I did a whole series on it last year. It's one of my favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like, you have, you have, first of all, you have virtuous Helen, which is going to piss off at Aristophanes to no end just for being virtuous Helen. Yeah, right? true. Because because the oligarchs especially, the conservatives especially, love to hate Helen. Um, love to show her off as the epitome of what every woman does wrong and why women are cursed. She's she's practically Eve, right? So so to have to have it start with virtuous Helen and then to take Menelaus, one of the heroes, and have him be kind of a bumbling comedic idiot. Mm-hmm. in a tragedy yeah it's so interesting because this these are the things that i talked about and w- obsessed over when i was talking about the tragedy itself last year and then now I'm, i was thinking about it in aristophanes and i was like well he's just quoting it but you're right like he i mean he's quoting this one so intentionally and meanwhile it leaves us to go this is a play that makes euripides like like the fucking realist like he's just so good and meanwhile of course it's exactly the play that makes Aristophanes go, this guy, like, ugh, he likes women. <laughs> right. So this is exactly, this is an exact parallel to what Aristophanes is doing with his women in Thesmophoria, right? Mm-hmm. Because the, the woman is in charge, so to speak, mm-hmm. and the man is a bumbling buffoon. And, and so, like, with Aristophanes sort of saying, like, right now our women are in charge and because the men are acting like women acting no better than women and here he has and look Euripides is reinforcing that by having this woman who is virtuous and who knows what's going on and this great Greek hero who is you know tumbling ass over fist and doesn't know his head from his stomach right so and that in a tragedy that's supposed to be serious. So putting that in this context reframes it as this is, <laughs> Euripides is so bad at tragedy that he's writing comedy. Mm-hmm. And Euripides is so bad for the city with his politics of pushing the envelope that he's acting no better than a woman. Yeah. Oh. So like that's that's my personal read on it. You might find others. Mm. Um now the Andromeda I don't know as much about. Yeah, um, well it's fragmentary, so it's harder right. for us. I feel like this has got to be like a I mean probably it's one of our reference points. I haven't looked into the Andromeda too much. I did have a guest right. on during the Helen um because uh Toff or yeah, Toff Marshall, um CW Marshall, oh, he wonderful. 
Yes, yeah. absolutely. And yeah, and so he studied the Helen and then the fragmentary Euripides. So we, we talked a little bit about like the Andromeda then, but it is interesting because it is fragmentary. So we don't really know entirely what, what he's playing on or what the play um, contained. I mean, obviously it had the Perseus myth, but but it, it it's fascinated me generally that that he did write the Andromeda and in the same year as the Helen because and that he's like, I mean, I guess just just having these plays that are are so focused on the women alongside more famous men. And I wouldn't say necessarily that Helen is not, you know, is less famous than Menelaus, but certainly Andromeda and Perseus, like you would think that the the tragedian would be writing a play called Perseus, not Andromeda. And so that kind of in itself is fascinating. And then um, obviously just even the, the woman centered notion of these plays is what Aristophanes is picking up on like, Oh my God, he went to year and he wrote all these plays about women. And then it's almost like the next year, that's exactly what Aristophanes did. He's like, but it's, I'm going to be insulting women <laughs> rather than, you know, making them interesting like Euripides. Yeah. And you know, it does make me wonder a little about the the context of the Andromeda. Um, I wonder if in that as well, we have an Andromeda who is pure and virtuous shown against a Perseus who is prideful and hubristic, which mm-hmm. is not a hard read of the myth, right? Like <laughs> no, that's it's pretty that's, true to the myth. <laughs> not but like when you frame the story that way especially up against something like the helen um this sort of theme of virtuous women captives struggling to find some semblance of normalcy while the men blunder about and make fools of themselves mm-hmm. um and and muck everything up you know that's that's a very that's a very euripidean take right like that's a very sort of like well think about this is this is the year before when they exiled Alcibiades again when they decided to send the sicilian expedition and everything started to go haywire and like the context of this is is like it's not hard to read that the next step as our bad military decisions are making Athens suffer. Mm. Right. And if you put that up against, of course, Aristophanes like, well, yeah, your bad decisions, not mine. <laughs> like, <laughs> You know, like that's because you're too lenient. It's definitely not because of our policy of conquest. Um, like, you know, it kind of, it kind of, it reads very, it reads very politically to me. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I don't think any of that's an accident. Mm-hmm. There's this line in the Theodore's translation that has, that has been, you know, bouncing around my head. It's one of the cruder jokes when, when, I mean, because there's so many jokes that involve Nesilicus's giant comic phallus. Right, mm-hmm. and when the women sort of lift his dress and find it, and and there's this like, ooh, there it is. Oh, it's gone again. Ooh, there it is. And they say, your your phallus is coming and going like the Corinthians out of our isthmus. Yeah, 
And so that is very directly Aristophanes saying that the Corinthian Navy is fucking us. <laughs> we are being penetrated by these Corinthian ships. And um, and we should fight back against it. And that's it's just such a a very political wartime reference that it's like it it feels almost out of place here and it kind of jars you back to that mindset of like oh wait Aristophanes is being a war hawk Mm -hmm. yeah yeah oh it's so interesting I'm glad to hear all this like political additions to to the whole narrative because as much as I've been reading a bunch of I mean it's interesting because this play is not one that's written about a lot when you're reading on Aristophanes so I've been like Mm -hmm. reading a couple different books and like you know just kind of skimming through a bunch of different sections on on Aristophanes the person and and Thesmophoria has to be like one of the least referenced plays Mm -hmm. in the sources I've been looking at so I've been like yeah learning a lot of him and all this but yeah it's 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 amazing to me how little has been written about this one when there's such clear political driving forces yeah, um, and there are very few translations too. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not a lot broadly on this play at all. Yeah, I was I was kind of looking around to see what commentaries were out there, and um, there really are not very many. There really just aren't. Um, I mean, like there there are articles for sure. Like, it's not completely neglected, but like, mm-hmm. there's really only one translation and commentary that I found, and that was you know, in the last 10 years, I think. And I was just like, huh. You know, like, I never I never read the Thesmophoria until pretty pretty far into my career as, as an academic. But I thought that was just because I wasn't focusing on comedy. Um, right. But no, like, it really is understudied. And yeah. I wonder if part of that is because it's so hard to translate the context. Yeah. Um, I mean, I understand, like, I mean, I, I would under, I understand, I've seen people talking about it too, but I understand that, that Aristophanes broadly would be very difficult to translate. Like, yeah. I, I mean, especially like, you know, you get into, I think the Scythian is, is probably a really good example of this too, but he also wrote a lot of people in like weird dialects that like, mm-hmm. then you have to try to convey that. Like, I know the Spartan uh, woman in Lysistrata is an example of that. And, and mm-hmm. I would imagine the Scythian because... I read this the end half in the Halliwell just because it was easier to make sure I read the whole thing before talking to you. Um, but the the translation of of the Scythian speech in that is like very odd and and interesting and like you can tell they're trying to make some kind of. I mean, there's a play as if like obviously Greek is not this person's first language, um, but it's interesting, and I I've, I imagine there's like a lot of that in in Aristophanes and trying to mm-hmm. translate that would be like, mm-hmm. oh my god, you know. Yeah, political context is so important for Aristophanes in particular. Like it's part, it's it's important for for most things, but like with most other comedians, comic playwrights that we have even fragments of, they're the more common style of comedy is very it's what turned into Commedia dell'arte. It's very stock. It's got a few characters that that like you can always recognize, and like it's it's very like mythologically based, so you can recognize that trajectory. Mm-hmm. But 
with people doing political satire like Aristophanes, you really have to know what they're satirizing in order to make any sense of it. And sometimes mm-hmm. we just don't. Um, it's like if somebody tried to, you know, play SNL sketches to aliens 2,000 yeah. years in the future without telling them anything about modern American politics, it wouldn't make any sense. That's so you know, true. they, they get example. the sense of who who the who Donald Trump is and who Hillary Clinton is or whatever. But like they wouldn't actually know what had happened in the news. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing we're working with here. Like, you know, yeah. I spoke very like confidently about Cleisthenes. Like we know he was essentially an ambassador and an official emissary. I speculate that he was working with Persia because that's what makes sense in context. Um, and and there are probably historians who study this period as like their their focus that know a lot more about him than I do. But like, without knowing who Cleisthenes is, it's like oh, just some just some. Uh, some guy in a dress okay well yeah even even the agathon too like i mean you know in in my for my purposes i've had to go into a lot of detail about like i i I don't have the whole history background but i've just done some like googling of these people because it's vital that you that i explain who agathon is because like we don't have his his tragedies Mm -hmm. So he's just a name and without the context of knowing that he is not an invented character, he is a real person. Like the play itself is so different without that knowledge. It's like, yeah, I mean, if, if you're reading this play and you don't know who Agathon is, maybe you don't even know who Euripides is. Like, I, I can't really see that happening, but like, <laughs> it's not impossible, right. you know? And so like, if somebody who doesn't have any background in any kind of classics picks this up and they don't even know who Euripides is, like, what a baffling thing to read, let alone the fact that there is all this historical and political context that is, you know, needed on top of the fact that this is a play explicitly about a very real person who wrote <laughs> tragedies, you know? It's, yeah, it, it, it's, I often forget how different it is um, because I have not covered many comedies because they're not really my favorites. Um but I often forget how different it is to tragedies because tragedies primarily are focused on mythological characters. And while there is like political context, that's often under the surface, like it is not as obvious and in your face as Aristophanes, where he is almost always writing about real people from his time who did real things. And you need so much more knowledge to, to understand like everything in the play other than like the very dick jokes those are universal and timeless and there are so many in this play there are so many there's too many <laughs> uh, yeah um i yeah i'm not a big fan of uh of comedy either honestly i find it more interesting as a source than as a, yeah. a as an artifact in and of itself um primarily because you know the sense of humor of the comedians we have left is so very conservative and sexist and gross to me. Um, like, 
feels it feels like I'm falling back on my catchphrase of I'm too ace for this shit. <laughs> you know? I don't I don't enjoy dick jokes most of the time. Uh, I don't enjoy how crass everybody is in these things. Yeah. Um, so I'm much I'm more you. interested in you know in what it says about what's going on at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. which for me makes Aristophanes actually kind of fascinating but for anybody coming at this as just a a play it's like but who the hell is that (laughs) yeah 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 I I mean it's I I agree completely like starting to cover this I was just like oh my god the volume of dick jokes like in this play that is about a women's only festival and like I'm just I'm tired of it like they're it, it's quite excessive. I, 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 I really, you know, I, I've, I've said this on the episodes already, but I regret telling, starting this play. I do. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's probably good in the end that people will know it and great. And I get to defend Euripides, but like, this is not the favorite thing that I've ever done. Frogs was so different because it is so silly and there are singing frogs and there are fewer dick jokes because the silly is the singing frogs. But this one is just, it's just all dick jokes. What, like, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's it's quite a play. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I think it's really interesting that it is set at a women's festival. Like that, the Thesmophoria existed mm-hmm. is something that I think is a little bit hard to conceptualize for people it's, now. Yeah, I, I I went into it in the beginning. Well, this the episode will air tomorrow. Um, obviously, will have aired by the time this one airs, but. I, I spent like the first half of the episode talking about what we know of the Thesmophoria, which is like a decent amount, which was so exciting um, because that's why I covered this play. Cause I was like, Oh my God, there's a women's only festival. And also Euripides is in this play. Like, obviously I should cover it. And then I'm reading it and I'm like, right. But I just forgot the Aristophanes part. Like I, I just kind of neglected to think about the fact that sure there, this is about a women's only festival and Euripides features. And even though I knew it was a Euripides slander, I still just failed to think of, right, this is Aristophanes. <laughs> it's really fascinating to think about these women's festivals in the context of the men who wrote about them. Because mm-hmm. um, like, this is not our only example. We have, we have, um, I, th- I think, like, I think there's a, a passage in Thucydides even that is about mm-hmm. the women off celebrating the Adonia at the same time the men are holding like a council and like the the sound is interrupting the council <laughs> and oh, I, I'm going to be really upset at myself if I misremembered who that passage is from because it sounds like it should be in Herodotus um, <laughs> but I, I think it was I think it was in Athens so it wouldn't be but also we have like if you look at um the Bacchae to bring in another, always always happy to look at the Bacchae <laughs> another Euripides um so that whole play is about a man who is obsessed with and upset by the women having a festival without the men outside mm-hmm. the city walls and how it kills yeah. him uh they're too cool for him that's all like, um uh, the, yeah that's so true now i want to look up when when the buckeye was written because now i wonder if it was response to this play 
it's not impossible, but I don't think so because it was it was at least performed posthumously. And I think Euripides had another chunk of years after this mm-hmm. that he was writing. Not to say that he didn't write it and just not perform it, but I know it was at least performed after he died. But that yeah. is an interesting question too, because it does kind of feel like it could be like, well, I can write about women going to a festival too, and it's just going to be a hell of a lot gorier <laughs> and more fun. Um, so much and more, more fun. realistic. Like yep. you know, because because in that play you have the main character whose name is escaping me at the moment, um, Pentheus. Yeah, Pentheus is, is sitting in his city, like imagining all of the nasty things the women must be up to when really they're just out there dancing in the fields and like it doesn't get nasty until he shows up to interrupt them yeah um and and everybody everybody tries to tell him this and he just refuses to believe it and like that that just feels so much to me like aristophanes come come your shit down yeah yeah that's um, so true i like that comparison of i mean just all of it and i could i could think of the back guy forever but but it is so yeah so uniquely different uh ways of of handling you know a festival that at the very least in in back guys almost all women uh, aside from you know the the god um but but yeah and the the pantheos of it all but uh Oh my gosh! I don't know. My brain kind of went off. We had a weird. But yeah, I mean, like, like we we started talking about like gender presentation and Mm -hmm. gender expectation, and I think the Bacchae is a really good counterpoint here, Mm -hmm. Um, because in that play, somebody who is far too rigid, rigid to the point of his own death, is clearly like fascinated by the gender play but afraid of it afraid Mm -hmm. that it will destroy him and in the end it does because he's too rigid um Mm -hmm. and the god themselves is very much presented in a gender fluid way in that play Mm -hmm. and not without reason like this is dionysus we're talking the breaker of norms the destroyer of Mm -hmm. binaries that's what that's what dionysus does that's why he is the god of drama and of wine and of the wild places where rules don't apply. That's set up against in Thesmophoria where the gender binary is incredibly strict and people who break it are to be mocked mm-hmm. and burnt and shot with arrows. And the the people on the other side of the line, the the women, are necessarily evil right mm-hmm. they're necessarily as sex crazed and deceptive as everybody wants to think they are mm-hmm. they're this other this unknowable and suspicious other rather than exactly what they seem other human beings doing things their own way and i think that really is very telling about that difference i see between aristophanes approach to gender and to politics and Euripides approach to gender mm-hmm. and politics. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought of how perfect Bacchae is as a counter to this, but it, I mean, it, it, it is both a perfect counter and it is just like, I mean, for so many reasons, but like, you know, 
a great example of why Euripides is not only, you know, just the best and I love him, but like also just a fascinating uh, person. And, and especially like certainly this play was written after. So whether it was, you know, whether he had it in mind or not, that he was writing that guy to counter Thesmophoria, like I think... I think that that the idea is certainly there. Like he would he would have known. And while even if it was like five or ten years later, he could have just been still thinking about, you know, all the nonsense that Aristophanes put into this play and and all the ways that he, you know, very rigidly and very critically um, played with gender. And then Dion- I almost called Euripides Dionysus. That works, honestly. <laughs> um, and then you know Euripides like was like well. You know, if you're going to do that and in my name, no less, then I'm going to write this play where we have this character who is fascinated by gender fluidity and his conservative nature is actually his downfall, even when he does play with gender, like he lets himself play with it and it blows up, you know, and and, and he is, yeah, this this conservative character who is too rigid and too many things. It's I'm, yeah, I'm I'm very into the idea of Bacchae now in connection to this. <laughs> but yeah, in general, ancient comedy is a little bit too crude for me. Um, I've never really gotten into iambics or, or into comedy for its own sake. But I think it's also pretty telling that, you know, the funniest joke that Aristophanes ever told is the same joke the Babylon Bee tells every three weeks. What is this? Pronouns. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah, like it's 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 pretty telling that that Aristophanes' idea of the funny thing that you can say about gender is, ha ha, look at the man in a dress. Yeah, yeah. And that this is still somehow compelling to so many people. Um, I think it. I think it speaks to my personal mantra when it comes to humanity: is that people, as a whole, never really change. We have the same, you know, the same flaws, the same foibles and weaknesses as people a thousand, two thousand years ago did. But we also have the same greatness that they did. Yeah. And I think it speaks very well of of people who are more open-minded that Euripides is still so popular and Aristophanes is just making the same tired joke as all of the turfs. Yeah. They never ca- or they came up frog. with anything new in 2000 years of history. And and it's I mean at the at the very least I do think you know, as much as I want to joke about singing frogs, but I do think at the least, like Aristophanes is known for something like the frogs in comparison to Thesmophoria. Obviously, Lysistrata is, he's certainly well known for that. Um, but I think that the most commonly talked about tends to be the frogs. And, and I think it might even just be because enough people today would much rather see a joke about singing frogs than have to rehash the very tired and now deeply offensive certainly was offensive always but enough people realize it now idea that like comedy uh, is a man dressing as a woman ha 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 you know so 
Yes, mm-hmm. vaguely reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I'm surprised the birds isn't more popular because mm. the way that Americans latch on to people being over litigious is it's so relatable. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think as 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 fascinating as I find the Thesmophoria Zusai, I'm glad that it's this least popular comedy. Agreed. I think now that, that I know that it speaks yep. really well of humanity. <laughs> yep. Yep. Agree entirely. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, this has been so much fun um, and also insightful and uh, so many things because it's Aristophanes, but at least we're defending Euripides because if we had just spent this hour and a half having to only look at <laughs> Aristophanes. <laughs> Uh, it would have been far less enjoyable. So I'm glad I had you on in my defense of Euripides. Thank you. This has been a real pleasure. Um, I, you know, like I said, anytime. <laughs> uh, I, I love doing this. So um, we must stand for Euripides. Oh, always. Uh, and, you know, those those Aristophanic, Aristophanic conservatives need to learn that there's more to life than their narrow scope absolutely well said um well is there um for one i will absolutely uh be jotting down your name for hippolytus so thank you um but do you want to tell my listeners where to find more from you if you want them to follow you read more what have you yeah um well, first of all, most importantly, you can find me on a previous episode of this podcast. Damn uh, right. Not not <laughs> just a phase where we talk about asexuality in Greek mythology. And you can also find me on both Twitter and Mastodon at Brododactylos. That's B-R-O-D-O-D-A-K-T-Y-L-O-S. Um, and it will be linked in the episode's description in case you didn't type that out. <laughs> which is perfectly reasonable. Um, I'll tell you right now that it's it's um, Aeolic dialect, which is sapphic for rosy-fingered, which is an epithet for the dawn. Oh, I'm so glad you told me that. Uh, yes. Oh, my God. I love that. <laughs> I've, like, noted your handle for so long. And also, rosy-fingered dawn is one of my all-time favorite things. So... <laughs> And uh, God Sapphic and Aeolic. Uh, those are probably the best places to follow me. Um, you can also find my work on such blogs as Piedzomen, where I talk about the me- mechanics of antiquity in video games. Um, and I also have an, a relatively new post about um, the gods of the Forgotten City. Mm. You can find me talking academia on Ancient Office Hours with the Ozymandias Project. Thank you. Oh my gosh, so much fun. Phew, nerds. That conversation... Honestly, like it helped 
so much. It helped me so much. So I hope it helped you all too. And as you heard, I went into this thinking I absolutely just hated the play. And while I don't entirely feel differently now, I at least feel like I understand it and can like appreciate more things about it. (laughs) The historical and political context helps immensely. That's one of those things that as much as I generally know the culture of ancient Greece at the time, the specific time periods and really intricate political machinations that go on in those little time periods are not something that I know offhand or have the bandwidth to research for every episode of this show. So thank the gods for amazing nerdy academics who want to come on and both explain history and politics and also espouse the wonders of Euripides. He deserves the world. So make sure you follow Julie on Twitter and beyond. Take in their work whenever you can find it. I'm fairly certain you're going to hear her on the podcast again because gods know I want to cover Hippolytus in more detail now. More Euripides is always a good thing. Next week, we have the final narrative episode of this play. But also, fortunately, another scholar came on the show and who knows even more about Aristophanes as a person. And I think that'll make even more of a difference in understanding this play and appreciating it beyond my attempts to make it a narrative structure. <laughs> Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, but I'm so glad for her that she did not have to read the Thesmophoria Zeusai. <laughs> Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Uh, Thank you all for listening, nerds. You are the best. Gods, I love conversation episodes. They are so damned insightful and can really change the trajectory of a series particularly this one. Thank fuck. I am Liv and I love this shit, but not Aristophanes. He was a douchebag. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why GameBridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. (sighs) 
<sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.